had our reading already from Nahum chapter 1, really could even go into chapter 2, probably at least at verse 2, and that's what I want to speak with you about again today, and kind of then the rest of the remaining chapter 2 and the chap- into chapter 3 is kind of just the prophecy of doom to Nineveh and how God will utterly destroy them. So uh, I'm not sure how much further I'll go into this after today, but uh, I do encourage you to read it. It is the Word of God. But I want to pray again before I start this, if you would join me. Heavenly Father, I rejoice at the privilege once again to speak your Word, and I pray that you would uh, just give us ears to hear. God, may my words be clear, but most of all, may the message be clear, because it should be about Christ, as the entire Bible is about Him. And so we testify to that today. But just sitting here singing, listening to your people singing, what a blessing that is. Um, God, I pray you'd help us to receive this mercy and this grace. As that song so beautifully put, there's, for the people of God, no guilt in life. And so, God, I pray that you would teach us to lay that down, to freely accept your grace and mercy and understand that uh, our debt has been paid and that we are free indeed in Christ. And God, help us to live that way. Motivate us and encourage us to live according to your precepts and your word. God, give us great joy in doing it. We thank you for the spirit that is within us. And we again ask that you would break our hearts by the word of God and those who have never trusted Christ, God, that you would give them faith in Jesus alone. For salvation. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we learned last week that this book of Nahum is about severe compassion. Nahum's name means compassion. And he is from the place called, he calls Elkosh, which we don't really know where it was, but it means God is severe. So interestingly, this is a book or a prophecy about God's severe compassion. And we talked a little bit at length about those um, sort of ironies that God is a God of severe compassion, that He acts in, as the first few verses teach us in Nahum, He acts as an avenging, wrathful God who takes vengeance on his adversaries and wrath upon his enemies, yet he is also, as verse 7 says, a good God who loves his people. And all the, all the avenging and wrath that takes place is for the purpose of glorifying himself and saving his people. And that's a glorious thing. God has and will go to great lengths <coughs> to chastise, correct, and ultimately save His people. We do the same at a much lesser level as parents. We correct our children. And as the Bible says, our Father chastens His children and corrects them. How much more will a God do that for His people? And He does that. He even uses His enemies to do so. In Nahum's day, it was 
the Assyrians, the world's notorious, most notorious and perhaps most ruthless empire ever, known in fact for the Assyrian yoke, it not only would conquer its enemies, but then humiliate them and severely oppress them to be sure that they never would rise again against the empire. And this oracle or burden that Nahum had concerns Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. It's a scathing pronouncement of the soon coming judgment from God upon this empire that just, remember, 100 years prior had been spared judgment at the preaching of Jonah, which produced their repentance. And so God, even though He is this vengeful, wrathful God who at times is angry with His enemies, He is a God who turns and relents from His anger at repentance. So the people of Nineveh repented, but now nearly 100 years later, there is no repentance to be found. And God is filled up with His anger toward them. And though this judgment is severe, and so too was the fact that God's people were being chastened by them, being in captivity, there's still compassion and forgiveness coming from God's, coming for God's people. And that's what Nahum does here. In the beginning of his message, he reminds God's people that can hear through this message of judgment that their God is a jealous God. He will have His people. And He will have them pure. And He will make them righteous. But He will have them. They are His. As Jesus said, none can pluck them from His hand. And so God is avenging and wrathful because His people are connected to the glory of His name and He will not have His glory given to another. And that ought to encourage us, church. Why will we never be lost? Because we are connected to the glory of God's name and He will pour out His vengeance and wrath, but He will do so on His enemies to save His people. That's an awesome thing. I deserve it, but I'm not going to get it because Christ took it for me. But those who will not come to Christ and believe in Him, they will receive the wrath of God. And it's a frightening thing. And it ought to frighten us as it should have frightened Israel even in this day to hear this message that the judgment of God was coming even though they would be spared. Make no mistake, God is not capricious. In other words, He is not erratic or unpredictable. So it's not fair when people say that God in the Old Testament, man, he just went about killing people and destroying things. He is very long-suffering. Again, this is 100 years after their repentance before, and they could have repented again, but they refused to. And so God's wrath is filled up. He is not unpredictable. He is not erratic. He's slow to anger. In fact, Nahum quotes from Moses this very thing that he is slow to anger. And Moses certainly knew about God's slow to angerness. As he watched it for 40 years in the wilderness, God's patience and long-suffering toward his people. But he also recognized, as Nahum points out, that God is great in power. At any time, he could 
use the mountains or the whirlwinds or the sea or whatever He wants to because it's all His. He is great in power. And He could destroy all of it at once. But He does not because He is long-suffering and He's good. But He will not clear the guilty, Nahum says. Sin has to be dealt with. It has to be paid. And God, in His great mercy, accepts a sacrifice for sin. The just for the unjust. Again, as Nahum points out in verse 7, the Lord is good. And it's interesting that outside the Psalms, this is one of about three times that I could find any Old Testament prophet anywhere talking about the fact that God is good. But He is good. And Nahum points this out for us as a reminder. Right in the midst of all this anger and wrath that God is about to pour out, people of God don't forget to hear this, that God is good. And He always will act out of His goodness. The prophets knew this to be true. They might not have spoken about it in these clear terms, but they knew that God is good. Even in His severity and His indignation and wrath, even in anger, God is good. He is good, and as Nathan points out, He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And He knows those who take refuge for Him. What a great word for the people of God in Adam's day. Wrath and judgment are coming, but hear this people of God. The God of Israel is good, and the day of trouble is coming, but He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. That word just means simply a fortress, a refuge, a place of safety. The people of God had a place to run to and be safe. As the psalmist says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. Those who run to it find refuge. And so Nahum gets to the severity of this burden. The Lord is good to his own. Before his adversaries, he says, he will make a complete end to them with an overflowing flood. This is part of that poetic language that Nahum is using. A flood is already overflowing. To say an overflowing flood means it's going to be compounded. It's an overflowing flood flood of wrath. And he says he'll even pursue them into darkness. In other words, there's nowhere they can run that they will not be found. And to this enemy of Assyria specifically, he says he will make a complete end. She will not rise up a second time. So true is this, in fact, that until the late 1800s, when archaeological discoveries unearthed the remains of Nineveh, historians thought the Bible was wrong about this place even existing. It was really utterly destroyed. I mean, so much so, it was pounded into the dirt and people didn't even think it was there. Until 2,000 years later, it was unearthed. That's a serious affliction. Serious Judgment, But if you read on in chapters 2 and 3 and just read about the Assyrian Empire, you'll see that why God says you're just vile and wicked. 
And, the, and they took pleasure in vileness and wickedness. They took extra pleasure in not just killing people, but torturing them. So God utterly destroyed them. And they never rose again. So God says that they will not rise a second time. You'll never see, you'll never suffer under this nation again. Now we know that pretty soon coming, Israel's going to be captured again by Babylonian Empire, but not this one. And the Lord says here to his people, Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break this yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. It's interesting that God, through the prophet, uses that word yoke because as I mentioned earlier, it was kind of a word that was... The Assyrian Empire prided themselves on being or having this yoke of Assyria that they would not only conquer people, but they would just grab a hold to them and push them down and so trample them that they would have no desire to really even live any longer. But God says, this yoke that's so powerful, I'm about to break it apart. <coughs> and it gets us to the part I wanted to really talk to, this verse 15. The good news of the gospel, right here in this Old Testament minor prophet book that very seldom is even read in church, that we often forget about, all of these minor prophets because the language is so harsh. I mean, what, how do you find a way to fit this into worship, right? It's be kind of hard to write a worship song out of Nahum other than these few verses of the gospel, you know. But this is still the gospel. The gospel in the Old Testament. The good news that the people of God were to hear. In the midst of all this judgment, behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news. The one who publishes peace. Now, Nahum had quoted Moses earlier, and here he quotes the prophet Isaiah, who was almost really a contemporary of Nahum, just about 70 years prior to this. Listen to this quote in Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace and brings good news of happiness. Nahum is quoting Isaiah. And you may remember chapter 52 of Isaiah moves into... Obviously, chapter 53, which is known as a messianic prophecy, all of really the end of 52, end of 53, just a beautiful picture of who Christ is and what he did for us. And there's so much going on here. Isaiah's prophecy, looking forward to Nahum's day and even beyond. And now Nahum's prophecy shows Isaiah's prophecy coming to pass, but it also speaks of a day beyond. Because this announcement of good news to come, we know is finally fulfilled in the day of our Lord. Right? This idea of the good news. I mean, Nahum using these words, behold, the one who brings good news. The same words of the angels who pronounced it 
for us. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And then it was read to us also from Romans chapter 10. This same quotation again. In the context of the Gospel. And of course in the context of Paul saying, I wish that all of Israel was saved, though that's not going to happen, but all of the true Israel will be saved. The elect of God will be saved, but he said, I have a great burden for them. But the problem is, they're trying to become righteous through the law rather than the righteousness that God offers through Christ. And he's warning to Israel that they missed Christ. But he goes on to make this beautiful statement that we're familiar with. I'm just not sure if we were familiar that it came from Nahum by way of Isaiah. But this is not new. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, he says. But in this context, how will they hear? How will they call on the one whom they've never believed in? And how are they to believe in the one whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written in Nahum and Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And Nahum even says, Upon the mountains, behold the one who comes proclaiming the good news. Just a way of saying the mountains being high and lofty and majestic. That one day there will be this time where the good news of the gospel will be proclaimed and everybody will hear it. It will have to be tucked away as Israel had been experiencing for these years under captivity and the, the harshness of Assyria. Afraid to worship. Afraid to speak truth. One day there will be a time when God's message will be proclaimed like as from the mountaintops. And no one will be ashamed to speak it. I love how Paul is pointing this out. Hey, is this righteousness going to come from the law? No, it's going to come from God through His Word. And it's near to you if you just hear the Word. Because confession is made with the mouth and the salvation and in our heart we believe and are justified. It's amazing that the gospel just plays out all the way through the Bible. It's not just the New Testament. This is why the New Testament writers say that all the truth about Jesus is preached in the Old Testament. And Jesus himself said, hey, the Old Testament, they are the scriptures that reveal me. I am who the prophets preached about. This is a wonderful idea of the beautiful feet of those who preach the gospel. You can imagine in this time where Syria had been just dominant and Israel had been humiliated and all of their culture, a lot of their culture destroyed, their worship ceased. And of course, because a lot of their fathers had been worshiping wrongly and falsely, but they were silent. So you can imagine one coming, heralding the good news that 
Assyrian dominance was about to end. And not only that, but what Nahum says to them even further, when he says, Israel, not only is this captivity about to end, but I want you to keep your feasts, O Judah, and fulfill your vows. The gospel comes, and salvation comes, and what does God demand of His people afterwards? Worship. Fulfill your vows, Judah. Go back to who you really are. Go back to what God has instructed you to do. Go back to your feasts. Go back to your vows and fulfill them. Because now you can. You've been set free. The bond of the yoke has been broken. Set free from your bonds now. Go and worship. And that's still the message that God gives to us today. Hear the good news. Hear the gospel. Believe the gospel. Believe in Christ. And then worship Him. The pattern has never changed. And fulfill your vows. In other words, there ought to be something in your life now that points to the fact that you have been saved and that you believe in Christ. Make vows and fulfill them. That is to the Lord. Because the gospel has been preached. It is a gospel of peace. There was great turmoil coming. Great wars about to happen. Judgment about to be poured out. But there was peace following it. And the preacher was heralding that. Behold the feet of the one who brings the good news. The gospel of peace. There's another allusion to that in Ephesians 6.15. Speaking of the armor of God. Do you remember that? And shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Just that picture of the gospel moving. Moving around the earth. It's a beautiful sight. It's a gospel of peace. It's a gospel that urges us and brings us to real worship. And it's the only way we can worship. It's when the Spirit is within us, calling us to Christ. And I want you to hear this message because... We may not live in the world that we read about earlier in Tanzania. We don't live in this world in Assyria. But we do live in a world that hates God and that pushes us down and oppresses us and puts a yoke on us. Wants us to be just like them. I mean, that's the whole point of that story from Islam. You're going to be just like us. We hate the real God. We hate God's people. We're going to kill them. We want you to be just like us. And so the world says to us the same thing. We want you to be just like us. Don't be different. Don't worship Christ. Don't practice holiness. Don't turn from your sin. Be like us. I mean, is that not all around us? Everything is being promoted to us as normal that we know is not normal. Everything is being promoted to our children as being not sinful when the Bible clearly calls it sin. And it's just the world continuing to push down on us and say, no, you've got to be like us. Don't you be different. 
Stop pursuing righteousness. Stop pursuing holiness. It's not attainable. And it's really not in the human flesh. But it's been attained for us through Jesus Christ. So we look to Him and His righteousness and His holiness. And we don't run after our own righteousness. <coughs> but we look to God and His righteousness, which is through Jesus Christ. And because of faith that He's given us, we come together like this and we worship Him and we offer our the fruit of our lips because of what's rooted in our hearts. We worship Him. And then we take our lives and we try to do the same thing. We want God to clean us up and make us right with Him and make our ways pleasing to Him. Not so we've got some kind of banner to hold up or not so we can look out and say, too bad people aren't like us, but so that we can just be grateful and thankful to God. As that song said, there's no guilt in life. Why? Because Christ took my guilt. And now rather than guilt, I have peace. Rather than turmoil in a, in a yoke of bondage, I have freedom. Freedom to live and to have joy and peace. And like so many in the world, even though they might slay us, we'll just be with God and we'll have the most peace that we could ever know. And that's the way we need to live, church. And again, we don't live that way to earn anything from God. We only live that way because it's already been earned for us. It's, it's part of the means of grace, a means of salvation that God has provided for us. The Holy Spirit within us to live, bring us to conviction and teach us so that we might live for Him. It's beautiful to see this kind of teaching even in the Old Testament, which shouldn't be strange, but it's strange to us because I think we neglect it too much. That's why we're trying to do this. Uh, not to prove we're more spiritual than other people because we teach from the Old Testament, but just the truth that this is a book. It's a compilation of many books, but it's one solid singular message from Genesis to the end of Revelation. And it's about our Savior and His kingdom. And it's about God making His name great by blessing His people Yes, He might chastise us. He might judge our sin, but He does so to make us right and pure. And we ought to be grateful for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And God, it is a beautiful Word. And it is a beautiful message. And God, help us to, as that uh, King James language says to us, shot our feet or prepare give, give us the preparedness of the gospel so that we can answer those who are contrary to it but also so we know how to live when this world wants to beat us down when Satan wants to accuse us and tell us lies that we're not worthy and that we'll, we'll never be accepted and that is true in, in the worldly sense, but according to the covenant made within the Trinity is absolutely not true because we are accepted in the beloved. He has made us accepted. We didn't earn it, but by grace through faith we've been saved. 
And that's the only way anybody will be saved. And I pray that you give us ears to hear that. And I trust that you would give your people more faith, help our unbelief. God, help us to live the way we are called. Because that's the way you have planned it. You don't want us to be in captivity. You didn't want your people to be in captivity. But because of their stubbornness and their rebellion, you brought that upon them to purify them and cleanse them. And now we look and see that that's exactly what you did to Christ. You brought all that wrath and anger down upon Him so that we would be cleansed and we would be made righteous. What a glorious message. What a glorious Savior. And to Him, we give our allegiance. We can't be divided. Our allegiances can't be divided. It's to Him and to Him alone that we commit our lives and ourselves, our marriages, our families, our church, everything we have, we commit to Him because He is worthy. We pray all this in His name. Amen.